Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past few days. Uh, we'll get to those questions in just a minute, but a special shout out to those of you who have been watching live over the past uh, few months. Uh, we've passed our now 200th episode of the Midweek Roundup and uh, very excited about that and uh, interesting to see where the next 200 will be taking us. Uh, as you know, each week we take the questions that we ask here on the Roundup from our newsletter stories. Our newsletter comes out Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern, roughly. Uh, either you can subscribe to it directly through our news, uh, our website, that's smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, and there's a form down the middle of the page where you can subscribe, fill in your name, email, institution, and we'll get you'll get that automatically in your inbox. That newsletter has between uh, three to five to six uh, social media stories and 15 to 20 uh, ed international education stories from not only the United States but around the world that can help shape our views on what, uh, what's happening in the wider world and what uh, we can be doing to potentially change or enhance what we're doing institutionally to better reach international students. Uh, if you don't uh, want to subscribe through our website you, and you're active on LinkedIn, we have a LinkedIn version of the, of the same newsletter that comes out uh, Monday mornings as well. And I'm dropping the links to each of those uh, newsletter uh, from the website, the current week's edition, and our LinkedIn version of the newsletter into the chat on our Facebook page and YouTube channels. And we'll add that in later on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. So uh, do take advantage of those newsletters. It's free subscription. Uh, we've got over 850 subscribers nowadays uh, to uh, the newsletter. Uh, so we're looking forward to better connecting uh, more international education colleagues. So please share it with your friends. Uh, but the new the midweek roundup is always geared on shaping uh, our thought or providing our thoughts on some key issues of the day uh, that relate to uh, international study, uh, international education. And the first question is, are you using student peers and personalization in your recruitment? Uh, for those that have been following um, the midweek roundup for the last couple, three, four years, uh, actually the last uh, two and a half years, we have developed what we call our six P's of strategic international enrollment management. These are our principles that are we consider foundational to successful uh, planning for international student recruitment, but not only just recruitment, but enrollment and managing their experience throughout their time at your, camp at your campuses. So when you use these six P's, these principles, it develops a philosophy that really uh, shows that you're, you're purposefully picking people as the priorities in your uh, approach to international student recruitment and international education as a whole. And the two of those P's, the last two P's, are probably the most important, peers and personalization. And that's why I bring this up in, in relates, as it relates to this question. Uh, um, for those that caught last week's live, uh, we were in Belgrade for the EdUSA Regional Forum uh, for Europe, Eurasia, and had the opportunity to present on a panel uh, with uh, Education USA advisors from Azerbaijan, from Poland, and from Georgia. And they each shared their experiences uh, during the pandemic and coming out of it as to how they were able to reach students effectively. Uh, and the answers were different depending on the country. Uh, different channels were, uh, were more effective in one country as opposed to the next. Uh, different ways of engaging with audiences uh, seemed to seem to work better in one country over, over the next. And what this knowledge really reflected was their, um, their way to uh, engage their former advisees who are currently in the United States 
with their current advisees that are preparing to go uh, and apply in this current year to, to, uh, to go to the U.S. So that personalization piece, that uh, engaging, uh, uh, having content that is driven by not the institution, but by the prospective students' peers, uh, organization at least, that is, are, are some of the most impactful kinds of um, uh, communication perspective uh, students can receive from institutions where it's not the institutions saying why you're so good it's your current students uh, that are not even if they are maybe on staff or paid uh, student workers they're still students living that experience and able to share what they're what they're ha what they're going through and for these EdUSA advisors that was very much a part of how they uh, convinced their current advisees that hey studying in the US can be all you want it to be and here's some examples of why that's worked how it's worked successfully. So that uh, I'm sh what I'll be sharing with you in the chat are uh, links to uh, a presentation I did called Going Beyond Webinars, Advanced Strategies for Collaboration Between uh, European Eurasian Advisors and U.S. Higher Education Institutions. Uh, also sharing uh, a, a, an interesting, uh, uh, well, not interesting, but it's a uh, useful uh, guide uh, to working with student ambassadors and you talk about peers. Uh, this particular piece is uh, from the ambassador platform, and they're one of the two major uh, student ambassador platforms out there. We know Unibuddy ambassador platform is kind of the other major competitor out there uh, that provides that kind of platform where uh, your current students can uh, communicate directly with your prospective student audiences and provides that the mechanisms and the mechanics to make that happen. But this, this, this article shares uh, not necessarily just for... Uh, working with TAP, uh, but it sh shows if you're starting a student ambassador program, here are some of the things you need to be ta taking into consideration. Uh, everybody knows that, hey, in an ideal world, we have our current students uh, tell our story for us because they're our best advocates. I learned that within the first few weeks of me starting in domestic admissions back in 1993. Internationally, it's even more important because for your prospective international students, unless they're already in the United States, uh, at an American high school or English language program or community college, they're likely not visiting your campus until they arrive for orientation. So how do you paint that picture of your campus? Uh, yes, you have your virtual tours. Yes, you have your uh, opportunities for live chats. But if you're not involving your current students in that process, it's a complete missed opportunity. So everybody knows that it's, it's important. So it's just a matter of how you put the mechanics, mechanics, mechanisms together to make that happen on your individual campus. So uh, TAP has a, a really solid article on nurturing your ambassadors' voices and insights, how to get started with icebreakers, kind of very basic stuff about how to uh, start this uh, group together, uh, about what you're going to cover and all of that. So it's a nice, simple article, but if you're ever, if you're in the process of getting going with a, a student ambassador program, uh, that's probably a great place to start. The other part of this question that uh, some of you may be wondering, what's he talking about there, Marty? He's going off the, going off the deep end a bit. What are we talking about, about pers personalization? Uh, well, personalization covers a lot of different area, uh, potential areas in how you communicate specifically with your international students. And here I'm not talking about, well, you're going to call them by their first name in an email that you might send to them. 
uh, or talk about their major or what country they're from. Those are all good things that you can and should be doing anyway uh, to help at least show the uh, impression that you're personalizing your communication to them. What I'm talking about here in terms of personalization, this go, there are a number of different layers to this, as I said. Uh, so, Personalization can involve uh, multilingual content that you have available so that you can send messages to students in certain target markets in their native language or particularly um, any content that might be directed to parents you might want to have available in that native language. Some of your initial recruitment materials uh, about discussing the admissions process. I'll give you an example. At UNLV, uh, we are uh, HSI, a Hispanic Serving Institution, and we're, our proximity in the, in the southwest of the United States is uh, there are huge Hispanic populations and Latin populations in our area. Uh, so there's some natural affinities for us to be more proactive in terms of how we communicate with those audiences. And we're extending that to uh, not only the domestic uh, students from those from the Spanish-speaking regions that uh, can benefit from uh, language content in Spanish on our website. We've created a, an entire site that covers uh, 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 Hispanic immigrants to, to our area, to desert southwest of the United States that are interested in higher education for their, for their children, targeting parents, but also children. Uh, that might not be native speakers yet. Uh, we were targeting that at uh, DACA students and also international students uh, from Latin America and Spanish-speaking countries there that would benefit from having content in English or in Spanish that could that could, they they could have available to help explain the process. And we were I've worked with that team at UNLV to help develop that content. Uh, and part of that has been uh, they had this. Uh, Paraguia Familia, that's what they called it, that page for, uh, for, that had Spanish-language con Spanish content on a variety of different issues, some of them about the admissions process, some about financial aid. Obviously, financial aid as a, for an international student is a very different beast than it would be for uh, uh, an, an immigrant family that has permanent residency, perhaps, perhaps or asylee or refugee status, than it would be for a DACA student or an international student. So that's something that uh, we, as we developed and uh, fleshed out some of the content there, we've, we've created language in there that's uh, appropriate for not only uh, immigrant populations, but DACA students and also international audiences that can s distinguish the differences between those audience, those groups, because there are significant differences that impact how they apply, what aid they could get, all of those things. So we now have a process beyond this Paraguia uh, Familia. Uh, um, we also have a couple of secondary pages that we've had translated as well, one of which is for our international undergraduate populations that uh, we, can, we can use to target students in uh, Spanish-speaking Spanish countries in Latin America to provide parents, and we're doing this primarily for the undergrad audiences, so we're, do, we're not doing it for the graduate, uh, but for, for undergraduate audiences where parents are uh, absolutely essential in family decisions of where their children will, will study. Uh, we have that content now available where the basics of the admissions process, uh, costs and all those things, will be explained uh, in their native language. So that's one example of personalization. Another is use, the use of what we call personas. Uh, personas are basically internal mechanisms you're setting up or, or uh, persona, internal personas you're setting up that describe your ideal uh, student uh, on your campus. 
uh, the, and there may be four or five different varieties of student personas that you would, if you had to describe the kinds of students you want and have on your college campus, these would be their major descriptors, their uh, common, uh, common uh, identifying traits and uh, in terms of um, where they're from, uh, what their uh, what their goals are, what kind of their kind of spirit is in terms of they are they adventurous, are they uh, kind of conservative, are they uh, eager for a challenge, and uh, are they uh, strivers, are they uh, high flyers academically, uh, and and it's okay to have multiple personas on your campus, not multiple personalities necessarily, but multiple personas represented in terms of who makes up your ideal student audiences on, or ideal student groups on your campus. Uh, they'll, they'll share some common characteristics. And for international audiences, this is important. Uh, Rahul Chadha, a couple, about five, six years ago, uh, had his four uh, levels of, uh, of four personas of typical, uh, typical international student personas. He had the high flyers, the, uh, the strivers, the, um, and a couple other var variants on that that uh, talked on a couple different levels on educational attainment in terms of their abilities and also financial ab financial ability. Uh, so there was a kind of a matrix he set, uh, set that uh, the average student and the uh, high income student, what that persona might look like and there would be common characteristics there, what the high, high achieving academic student and high, high income academic student would be, then the low income academic student uh, low-income student who is also a high achiever and what that looked like and then the low achieving uh, low financial resource uh, student what they they look like what their common characteristics are and some institutions may want uh, only would only be able to really ideally want two of those four uh, some might want all of those uh, or be able to accommodate all of those so it all depends on uh, if you're using those four as an example there are more multiple uh, personas that you could have but again these are internal things that you use to kind of describe who your target audiences can and should be for who you want to recruit on your campus. And that impacts how you market uh, your institution, uh, how you talk about uh, the admissions process, uh, how you talk about uh, scholarships or financial aid. Uh, that if, uh, if, if, you do, if you're an institution that does not have a lot of financial resources, uh, then do you want to be uh, promoting yourself to as an accessible institution to low-income but high-achieving students when you don't have full aid? Uh, probably not. Is that a good use of your time and resources as an institution? Probably not internationally. So it's just a way to help guide uh, your marketing efforts uh, and in terms of attracting the kinds of students that you want so that certain messages will resonate with certain, uh, certain personas out in the market in terms of how students kind of um, approach uh, U.S. higher education in terms of what institutions they select to apply to, uh, what, uh, where they, uh, what parts of the country that they're looking at. Uh, so all of these are factors that you can, you can include elements of into how you develop personas. And again, they're not meant to be externally focused and are available. You may do that kind of uh, on the, not, not, covertly, but you may do that in a way where if you have student profiles uh, of uh, your current international students on your site that uh, maybe they're part of your student ambassador program, you might have profiles of those students that might represent those some of those key student personas that you're looking for. And that, ideally, that's a way to at least put a public face on what personas you're looking at or want to attract to your institution. 
Uh, but this is there's a, there are ways to do that in, even within uh, certain certain regions where uh, there may be a very different kind of student that comes from that region to your institution as opposed to from uh, uh, from other regions of the world. So you, you paint a face, put a face on the kind of students that you want to come to your institution, and you do that through perhaps the student ambassadors you have working for you or the or the profiles you put on your website. But internally, it, it impacts how you market to that group. What are the core messages that will resonate with a student who's a high flyer academically, but doesn't have uh, uh, great resources available, financial resources to their family? Uh, that's a different, potentially a different message than what you send to the high, uh, high financial resourced family, and that is a middle-of-the-road achiever. Uh, or maybe the underachiever uh, academically. So those are things that you want you want to find in your mix uh, of of how you how you speak to different audiences, and how to get that granular is oftentimes uh, a concern. Do we have the bandwidth to do this? What can we really do A and B messaging to to group different to the same group uh, to test to see which one works? And eventually you get to that point where the more sophisticated you are with your marketing. But um, certainly that's something to shoot for and uh, the personas and personalization certainly can and should be a part of that. Uh, and it was a great session on personas uh, at the EdUSA forum and I'll, I'll, they had a great uh, Google Doc of, uh, of resources that uh, they've made available that, uh, to share with uh, interested uh, institutional representatives. So you'll, you'll get that today in the chat. So that, that's a great, great question to start, and it's one that's always near and dear to my heart in terms of sharing uh, the kind of, kind of uh, real um, meat and potatoes of how international student recruitment and marketing should be done, and the key elements of that, that per peers and personalization needs to be uh, essential to successful uh, recruitment strategies internationally. So let's move on to question two, and that is what do recent international education mergers and acquisitions, frankly, or acquisitions seem to be the flavor of the month or the flavor of the week last week. Uh, what does that mean for international student recruitment? Uh, one of these is a, is a, it will be seen as more of a domestic one, and that is uh, EAB, uh, the massive conglomerate higher ed admissions and, and enrollment um, consulting firm. Um, many institutions have been working with EAB for years uh, on this front. Uh, uh, certainly, two of my two of the institutions I'm working with now have used EAB or are currently using EAB. They have purchased Concourse, and Concourse, for those not familiar, uh, is kind of a, a flipped admission system. Uh, instead of uh, uh, being a name by list where uh, uh, institutions can purchase uh, students who fall in a certain criteria, and then they can start uh, uh, communicating with them and, and encouraging them to in inquire about and apply to their institutions. Uh, Concourse has a very different system. It's called the flipped admission system. And we've seen uh, a number of institutions kind of uh, explore this possibility in the United States uh, in terms of recruiting non-traditional students, but it does have, there's a particular niche internationally where this is becoming increasingly popular. Uh, it's, a, it's an approach that I'm eager to see more institutions uh, take advantage of because when you look at it, this could be a potentially very much, could be a game changer for U.S. institutions that are trying to up their game internationally to make the process uh, uh, a much more productive uh, use of uh, institutional dollars in terms of how they recruit uh, and much more, um, much more transparent. And in fact, uh, what the flipped admissions process does is 
uh, st students have a profile on online that they uh, then that they make available that uh, that's kind of in, kind of uh, well it is in, in in many ways anonymous but the academic pieces are all the same country uh, grades all of that uh, and it allows universities to kind of accept them based on those profiles that they're putting out there and those the content and obviously transcripts and all that's vetted uh, by uh, concourse now EAB buying that is a potentially a game changer in terms of how uh, not only uh, domestic admissions is done, but internationally how, how we could be doing uh, admissions for those institutions that are working with the AB that may now also want to take advantage of what Concourse has to offer. Because this all goes back to what I talked about earlier uh, when, with the six Ps, and one of those first P is actually perspective, is understanding how uh, you, when you're recruiting internationally, your place, the U.S.'s place, in a globally competitive market for the same students where you now have students that might be in Nigeria that could be applying to uh, the UK, to the US, to Canada, Australia, and China, uh, where there are significant numbers from, those, from Nigeria going to each of those countries. Uh, and that reality is, okay, how do, we, how do we separate ourselves? And when UCAS is the one form that not only inter international undergraduate prospects, but also international graduate prospects have to fill out for both applying to British universities at the undergraduate level or graduate level. So uh, that is a, is a very simple process. Uh, Canada's is a, is, a, is a simpler process. Uh, Australia is a simpler process than many U.S. institutions. And I'm not talking here about the Ivies. They're going to do their own thing. They're always going to get their numbers, so we don't need to worry about them. They admit less than 10% of their students, and that's in a good year. So what I'm talking about here are the greater majority of U.S. institutions that have the reality is are not open access but are fairly close and have, have admission standards that are very transparent that you need a 2.5 or 3.0 and you're admitted to my institution here's what you got to prove English proficiency here's what you got to prove um, financially to get uh, an I-20 to come so what potentially this does is it says to institutions as a way to get uh, these international students using concourse uh, that part of uh, what EAB has just purchased uh, internationally it could allow uh, students who put their put their profiles on the system to be admitted by institutions who just see their profile and know that everything's properly vetted and can accept them directly and that is a very different system it's a very uh, I think it could be a game-changing system if it becomes more universally accepted and maybe it only takes a few countries that it gets trialed in to see if it works but that could be a game changer for us in terms of competing for those same students that might be looking at other destination countries and if you have aid available or scholarships available that you can then also give it's almost like spot admissions and the British have been doing this in um, and Australian universities have been doing this in India for years but this is, a, this is an opportunity for the U.S. to be able to do this without even seeing who the student is, what they look like, anything else about them. Uh, you're going to be able to admit them through this, through this kind of flipped admission system. It, is a, it obviously throws everything on its head in terms of how we admit students now. But if you, if you know, the, know the content that you're seeing is, has been properly vetted, if you know that uh, there's uh, no issues on the, on, in terms of fraud or that type of thing, and if you're comfortable making a decision, uh, but uh, you see students and you can say, I'm going to offer admission to that student. I'm going to offer that student uh, 
$10,000 a year scholarship it's just by picking them out of the lit out of the litter that you might see on a, on a site or a profile page. Uh, that's a game changer. So if that happens, uh, it's, it's probably the one of these mergers that we're talking about today or acquisitions we're talking about today that I think has the most long-term potential impact um, as in terms of a major player on the admissions enrollment and consulting side, uh, marketing perhaps to universities, hey, go with this kind of flipped script, flipped admissions process. Uh, so we'll see. But that, that's the most the one with the most significant potential and as to how it might impact international admissions. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. The other two, uh, one is Times Higher Ed, who, who has been in acquisition mode. They've been purchasing a number of different platforms recently, or companies recently in the last uh, couple of years. Um, they've um, Times Higher Ed has been in the ranking business for a while. They've uh, I think they've bought Study International and they've just bought Inside Higher Ed. Uh, they've now just bought BMI. BMI has been one of those uh, event uh, providers, uh, both online and in person, uh, for that have attracted international international students to consider uh, schools in most of the major destination markets. BMI has run these uh, programs successfully in Latin America, Middle East. Uh, they're now uh, part of the t uh, Times Higher Ed family of companies of uh, international educators. So I don't know that necessarily is a game changer. That's, that's, that's a not one that BMI fairs have been decent in the past that I've attended. Some people uh, work with them exclusively. Uh, others have say it's a hit or miss, um, and the reality is probably somewhere in between. But uh, I think uh, I my my opinions of Times Higher Ed as a company. I, in the way they, they handled Russia and uh, in related to the rankings, it's uh, there's I'm not I'm not I don't agree with what they're the way they've approached that. Uh, I don't like that they bought Inside Higher Ed because if they put that behind a paywall, then that will rule out both of the major other than uh, the Pi News, which is my preferred uh, higher international higher ed education story uh, news story uh, source. Uh, if Inside Higher Ed goes away behind a paywall, then, then it's going to rule. It's going to limit the, their appeal, frankly, in the United States. And um, certainly, uh, that there's a lot of lot of lot of concerns I have with Times Higher Ed, but uh, not my favorite uh, in terms of their their approach to business. But we'll see where that goes. The third is uh, not a niche one, but it's certainly. Uh, it's actually a major player internationally in terms of the agent scene, and that's IDP's purchase of Intake Education. Intake has uh, major offices in West Africa some, uh, and in Taiwan, which are countries that uh, Taiwan in particular, uh, IDP does not have a significant presence in. That in West Africa in particular, IDP has opened offices in Nigeria recently and is expanding in West Africa and all of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. You see that as a as a, as a significant upgrade for IDP. Uh, so there's it's making one of the bigger biggest players out there bigger, and in areas that hadn't been previously uh, uh, successful. And so I think that that uh, can be for those that are working with IDP as part of their overall uh, international education recruitment strategies. Uh, that uh, will be a plus. Uh, how long it takes. Uh, they had a web webinars this past week for U.S. reps uh, who are already IDP partners to see what that might look like for them. So we'll see what uh, what that uh, how that shapes out. But that's a potentially big one as well. Last question of the day and is is one that is probably the most outside of career services, probably the one of the most underdeveloped areas of 
the international student journey on most college campuses. I say most, not all. Uh, there are a few shining lights out there that have well-defined international alumni programs, that have well-defined services within career services for international students, data even for international students to show where they can get jobs. Uh, what I think is important is uh, with this concept here, with the question is, will international alumni networks become the norm for U.S. universities? I think they should. Will they? Probably not because of the amount of work that's going to be involved in even getting institutions to care about their international alumni. No institution is going to say, no, we don't care who they are. But the practices on the ground in terms of the rally of, do you, when I ask the simple question at a lot of institutions that I've consulted with, do you track your international alumni? Do you know where they are in the world? Uh, that's not just your international students who go home, uh, whether they stay in the United States, your uh, domestic uh, alumni, uh, if they move overseas, do you track that? They probably do the latter more than they do the former, but uh, the reality is internationally based alumni of most institutions, uh, unless they self-select in, uh, they don't really get it. Uh, they don't really become a part of that, uh, that, that, that network of uh, graduates. But it's so important. Uh, when you look at what we've talked about in the past about how important outcomes are to uh, prospective students, particularly at the undergraduate level, but also at the graduate level, how important job placement is, where they get into graduate programs, uh, all of those things are, are, should be data points that you can speak to, ideally, uh, to prospective audiences. Uh, because they're asking about it. What's my son or daughter going to get after I drop uh, $200,000 to $500,000 on their education over the next four years? Uh, if you can't answer that question effectively, oh, about 80% of our students get jobs within six months of graduation. Yeah, that's all students. How about international students who have very s specific limits on them? They have to get a job within three months of uh, graduation. Otherwise, that uh, and uh, be on approved OPT. Uh, they can only be in the country if they don't have a job for two months after they graduate. So what, what is that, unless they move to another status or get approved for OPT? So that, or start a new degree. So those are things that you, you have to ask yourself. Okay, do you have the data to support the answers that prospective students and parents are going to be expecting from you? about where does my son or daughter have a chance of getting a job? Where can they intern? Uh, and what, what support do they get once they do graduate in terms of finding a job? Uh, there are services out there now that help students uh, find positions in their home countries or in other countries around the world uh, that most career services offices aren't prepared for. Uh, there may be international, uh, there may be alumni networks that exist and perhaps they can get plugged in if particularly if they're looking to stay in the United States, but that's a process that needs to start months before they graduate because of the restrictions that they have on them by immigration law. They have to apply within 60 days of, uh, or 30 days of, grad of uh, their graduation, they have to apply for OPT, uh, and if they, uh, they, that can start no later than no later than 60 days. I think I, think I may get my, my minimum days mixed up, but they're on a tight schedule once they're graduating in terms of working. So they have to have back that up a bit, six, eight months before they plan to start work. They need to be in touch with alumni that might be able to help them find jobs if they're domestic-based uh, and planning to stay in the United States. But if they are planning to go abroad, are there international alumni networks at your institution that can help identify potential employers in the country that they're looking to get to? So. 
the reason this is coming up, there was an article from uh, our friends at Inted. Uh, it's the first of a two-part two uh, two, uh, series, Prospective Students Seek a Career Network. And the second part of that series just came out today, and we'll profile that in the newsletter next week. Uh, but this first week really talks about uh, the kind of things that you need to know uh, related to, uh, for, for undergraduates especially, about uh, developing that network before they graduate so that they can move, in, take, move seamlessly into the transition to uh, work, the work world uh, when they're finished with their degree. So they have some great resources in there uh, for, for, those, for students that are looking to make that, that switch. Uh, and they taught, there's a, uh, Dr. Gretchen Dobson's 2017 research on global alumni management for U.S. institutions, the state of the field. 65% at that point surveyed, uh, reported having no dedicated staff to international alumni management. 51% reported having insufficient time. 28% reported having an insufficient budget to meet their needs. So I think that uh, there's certainly the need is out there. And uh, maybe even within alumni offices, they say that 50%, uh, more than 50% say that they uh, found international alumni management very important to increasing recruitment and brand awareness, but 30% say didn't see, feel they received sufficient internal leadership support to make it happen. And this goes back to what we, we say all along when we're talking about internationalization on campus and what that looks like and what it needs to look like to be successful. And that's when you have top-down buy-in uh, in terms of uh, funding, not just words, funding for the necessary uh, staffing that you need to bring in the students, the staffing especially to take care of them once they're on campus, but staffing to handle that back end, those back-end needs uh, in career services and alumni, because those two are very much connected, and those, are the, those will determine the end success of that student in terms of being able to find that job, be able to find, plug into an international network, uh, wherever they're going to be, that they can have, they know that their institution helped them get there. Yes, the student will be great and academically will be well prepared, hopefully, by the time they get through. But are they going to be have, have the resources available to help them get to that next step where the ties will be cut uh, from the safety and convenience of the in university campus to what they're going to face in the real world in terms of that job support and uh, that network to help them identify the right jobs. So great, um, great art article series, again, coming from Inted, and we'll, we'll pro profile next week's part two in uh, or this week's part two in the newsletter uh, on Monday. So be sure to subscribe to the newsletter if you're not already um, uh, on that list. And if you are listening to the audio-only podcast version of the Midweek Roundup, thank you. Uh, we've now had over 2,000 downloads in our, in our episodes over the years, and I'm very grateful that you're a part of uh, uh, making us a part of your international edification each week. So thanks very much for everyone for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Cheers.